from the Great Commission, from Matthew. And most of you are, are probably familiar with the Great Commission. But I'm hoping that this morning that we can look at this passage and take some time and see the source of the Great Commission, what I've called the Great Commissioner this morning, the one who empowers us to accomplish the Great Commission that he gives us, to make disciples, which is a bigger task than just making converts or evangelism. So in this passage this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' credentials, his instructions, and his promise. We'll look to what Jesus has accomplished, his credentials. We'll look forward to what Jesus will accomplish in and through us, his instructions. And we'll look up knowing that Jesus is with us, his promise to the end of the age. Let's go to our God in prayer before we start this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you that you've not left us as orphans. We thank you that Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us now and to the end of this age. We thank you that we serve an all-powerful, risen Lord and Savior who empowers us to go out and do the work of making disciples. Give us insight and help us this morning to understand our great commissioner a little deeper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase before, consider the source. Consider the source. Think about who is telling you something, who's giving you the advice, whether you trust the source that it's coming from, whether the the source actually knows what they're talking about. So if I want to give you fashion advice, I probably wouldn't trust the source. You don't need to listen to me about fashion advice. And if you like any of my fashion, credit my wife, not me. She is the source uh, of my fashion. But if Michael Jordan was here and giving you some basketball advice or some basketball tips, I would hope that you would listen to him. I hope you'd consider the source and probably do it. I remember when I was in high school and going through all the things that uh, a high school boy goes through, that my dad would helpfully uh, comfort me at at times and try to advise me to consider the source of information that I was getting or advice that I was getting. But he had a funny way of putting it. He didn't just put it as the, the common phrase, consider the source. He said, think that you're walking alongside a mental institution and somebody's yelling at you from the other side of the wall. Consider the source of the information that you're hearing from the other side of that wall, and then treat it accordingly. Consider the source of the information that you're receiving before you actually apply that information. In our passage this morning, we have Jesus, who is the source of the Great Commission, what I've called the Great Commissioner this morning. He's the one who's the risen, all-powerful, Lord, who's with us to the end and sends us out to make disciples, not converts, to make disciples of him. So we're going to jump into our passage, but as you can tell, we're jumping into the very end of the book of Matthew. And so we're going to do a quick flyover through the book of Matthew to set up, to get us to the setting of the book of Matthew and then the setting of our passage uh, this morning. So the overall book setting, right? We have the conclusion here of the gospel. And if you've been around church for a while, you know gospel means good news. So this is the good news according to 
Matthew. And we're at the conclusion of the book of good news. Matthew's taken us through the genealogy of Jesus connected to, G, uh, connected to King David, the visit by the Magi, the Sermon on the Mount, the parables of the kingdom of heaven, the passion of the Christ, the cross, his death, the empty tomb, the triumphant vindication, the exaltation of Christ and his glorified body and appearances to various people. And now we've reached the very end of this book. And there we read the first verse in our passage this morning, verse 16, where Matthew records, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So Jesus has directed his disciples to meet him at a particular mountain in Galilee. Now recall that the way that Jesus' first great speech in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, began was in a mountain in Galilee. And now Jesus' last great speech in Matthew is going to be from a mountain in Galilee. But why Galilee? Why is this important? Well, Matthew earlier in his gospel in Matthew 4.15 has called Galilee the Galilee of the Gentiles, quoting from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Jesus is sending out his disciples to the Gentiles to spread his message of repentance and faith and doing so from the mountain in Galilee. So why 11 disciples? Well, as you might recall, in Matthew, Judas had betrayed the 12 earlier and had left. Jesus had resurrected approximately 40 days earlier before our passage, and he was sporadically appearing to various disciples and others throughout his time between the resurrection and this point in Matthew. So they had seen the risen Jesus. These 11 disciples plus others had seen the risen Jesus. But Matthew records that they worshipped, but some still doubted. Why? You know the old phrase, seeing is believing. Well, not always. Seeing is not always believing. You still have doubting disciples and followers of Christ here. So maybe some doubted if this was really Jesus. Maybe some doubted if it was right as good Jewish monotheists to worship Jesus. Or maybe some just doubted because it was all so unbelievable, even at this point to them. The word translated doubt here really has more of a flavor of hesitation. So why are the disciples hesitating? Maybe one commentator suggested that maybe the reason they're hesitating is because Jesus is coming in verse 18 and approaching them from a distance. Maybe he's not instantly recognized by them. Or maybe some have hesitation if it's really Jesus. Or maybe the sum here refers to those other than the 11 disciples. But I want to suggest to you that Matthew is being very intentional about why he includes the doubt here, the hesitation of the disciples and of the band of disciples here. I think Matthew includes this information because of what he's about to tell us that Jesus says. The disciples are about to be sent out into an unbelieving world where some will have doubts about the risen Lord as they deliver the message. Some will believe and some will not. Some will have hesitations as this message is delivered to them. And Matthew wants both his readers in the first century and us today to know that we will experience the same thing as the disciples. Hesitations, doubts, 
concerns about this good news, just like Jesus' disciples did who saw the risen Lord. So now we come to our first point about Jesus' credentials, looking back to what the all-powerful Jesus has accomplished. And this is in verse 18. Verse 18, Matthew records, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Some commentators have suggested that this is perhaps the most important or the key verse to Matthew's gospel. This is Jesus telling us that he is the all-authoritative, all-powerful one. He is the one that the Old Testament has prophesied about. Now, Jesus has said over and over in his ministry that he is greater than the greatest people and things throughout their history. And Matthew drives this point home throughout his gospel where Jesus says in Matthew 12, 6, that Jesus is greater than the prior priest represented by the temple. So he is the great priest. Matthew records in 12:40 that Jesus said he's greater than the prior prophets as represented by Jonah. So Jesus is the great priest the greatest prophet. Matthew records in 1242, Jesus said he's greater than the prior kings represented by Solomon. So Jesus is the greatest king. So he's the greatest priest, prophet, king. Jesus says he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Matthew 517. Jesus tells his disciples throughout his ministry that the Father has given all things into his hand, Matthew 1127. And Jesus tells the high priest during his sham trial, that he is the son of man, Matthew 26, 64. But now, Jesus tells his disciples, he is the risen, glorified, all-powerful Lord. Jesus' reference here to all authority in heaven and on earth is a callback, an important callback to Daniel 7, to the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel in Daniel 7. In Daniel, Daniel the prophet records a dream and visions that he has of four beasts. And these four beasts probably represent four kingdoms sometime maybe between the time of Daniel and the time of Jesus, depending on how you look at the, the four beasts. And the fourth beast that Daniel records in his prophecies, he says, was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong with iron teeth, ten horns, and speaking great things. So you have this setup, this ancient horn, who seems like the most powerful one in the whole vision that Daniel has. And then Daniel records in the next verse, verse 9, the ancient of days with clothing and hair of pure white and a fiery flaming throne sits down in judgment with tens of thousands all around him serving him. And that ancient of days destroys the fourth beast. And then Daniel goes on and he writes in, the, in verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. So see in our passage, when Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, that Jesus is telling 
His disciples, His followers, and Jesus is telling us today that He is the Son of Man from Daniel 7. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is the one who was promised centuries ago in Daniel's prophecies. He is the triumphant, risen, all-powerful one. He is the one with an everlasting kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. This is the risen Lord that's standing before the disciples, telling them that He has all authority in heaven and on earth, getting ready to assign them one final task, but reminding them, encouraging them, strengthening them with this news that they will be able to go out and do this task because Jesus is the Son of Man. John Calvin, in his commentary on Matthew, helpfully writes this. He says, Never certainly would the apostles have had sufficient confidence to undertake so arduous an office if they had not known that their protector sits in heaven and that the highest authority is given to him. For without such a support, it would have been impossible for them to make any progress. But when they learn that he to whom they owe their services is the governor of heaven and earth, this alone was abundantly sufficient for preparing them to rise superior to all opposition. Now, I'm sure all you have seen movies or videos or read books uh, with good guys and bad guys, right? And every, every bad guy in, in every story always has a weakness, a way to be beaten, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't really like the story if the bad guys won. Well, one of my favorite Disney movies, if not my favorite, is Aladdin. And as you might know from Aladdin, there's Aladdin, the hero of the story, and there's Jafar, the evil sorcerer who's trying to undermine and take over the kingdom. And Aladdin uh, finds a, a genie who grants him various wishes, and then eventually Jafar gets the, the genie, and Jafar is able to uh, ask for various wishes from the genie. And uh, Jafar's uh, second wish is to be the most powerful sorcerer in the world. So you see in, in the scene, if you've seen it, uh, that he's becoming more and more powerful. It looks like there's no way to stop him. He can transform into various shapes and do all kinds of things. And then Aladdin continues to egg him on, and he, and he says uh, to Jafar, well, you're not, you're not more powerful than the, the genie here. And so Jafar makes his third and his final wish to be the most powerful genie in all the world. And I remember this scene vividly from the first time I've seen it to today, that as Jafar begins to transform into the most powerful genie in the whole world, he's uh, enlarging, he's growing out of the, the palace there. He has planets spinning around him. He's holding galaxies and solar systems in his hands. And he says, uh, power, absolute power. The world is mine to command, to control. And at that point, it looks like evil has triumphed. It looks like there's no way to beat this guy. And then Aladdin springs his trap. He grabs the lamp. The evil Jafar is confined to the lamp and it's sent out into the desert until Aladdin too. But he defeats, <laughs> he defeats the powerful genie, the most powerful genie. But it's that image of this looks like the most powerful being in all 
the world. And then seconds later, it's flipped and he becomes confined to that lamp and he's sent away. So it's not really the absolute power. Jesus is the one who tells us here in our passage that he has the absolute power over sin, death, the world, the devil, life and death, this world, the heavens, the universe. Jesus is the risen Son of Man. We worship this all-powerful risen Lord who's triumphed over death and who promises us a resurrected and glorified body like his if we trust in him, if we confess our sins and turn to him. So this Jesus declares that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, so why should we fear? When we have that conversation with a friend or a family member about Jesus, what should we be afraid of? We're serving the all-powerful risen Lord, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Our powerful, triumphant, victorious Christ is our leader who came and saw conquered death and promises victory to his followers. So because our Lord has all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore his disciples will go and make other disciples of him. As Jesus instructs in the next verse of our passage, which brings us to our second point, Jesus' instructions. Looking forward to what Jesus will do in and through us. Verses 19 and the first part of 20, Matthew records Jesus' words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now you've heard the the funny uh, question, maybe the English teacher's question, uh, what is the therefore, therefore, right? Why does Jesus here say, go therefore? Well, this is a connection, this is a callback to the verse that we just went over, that Jesus is the all-powerful one, that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy. And so Jesus says, because all these things are true, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Because Jesus is the all-powerful one, go and do these things that he's assigned. So Jesus here sends out his disciples to all nations. The, the, what the Greek calls the panta ta ethne, the all peoples, the all people groups, all tribes, all languages without distinction. The, the kingdom of the Son of Man prophesied about in Daniel requires disciples of all nations. It's made up of all nations. The kingdom shown in the revelation to John in Revelation is a kingdom of all nations, tribes, tongues, and languages. Isaiah had prophesied centuries before Jesus that the Messiah would be a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus says, my reign, my authority extends across the whole world and beyond. Jew and Gentile, no one is outside the authority of Christ. So he sends out his disciples to all nations, just as he sends us to all nations. And what is his assignment? 
as he sends out his disciples. And what's his assignment for us? He says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. And he breaks that down into two actions, baptizing and teaching. The two steps in making disciples, both equally important. This is the justification and the sanctification, the evangelism and the weekly preaching. The Great Commission is bigger than just evangelism and conversions. Uh, unfortunately, I, I would tend to think that we've kind of reduced the Great Commission sometimes to just only about evangelism or conversion. But I think that what Jesus is telling us here, what he's commanding of us as we make disciples is going out, baptizing, seeing conversions, and teaching them to observe all things, seeing sanctification and growing followers of Christ. And sometimes, maybe you've been in churches like this, sometimes churches can become too uh, focused on the evangelism side to the detriment of the sanctification of the growing disciples in following Christ. Or sometimes churches can grow, can have too much of growing followers of Christ and not the evangelism side, seeing conversions. And Jesus here is saying that it's a both and. That, it, that going and making disciples is seeing conversions through evangelism and also through teaching them and seeing them grow throughout their lives and their walk with Christ. So what's a disciple? What's a disciple? It's not the most common word that we use. So a disciple in the, in the New Testament era, a disciple is one who hears, commits to the master, commits to the teacher, obeys the teacher, accepts what he says as true, hears, understands, obeys, and follows. Jesus calls for disciples to follow him, to obey his commands, to walk with him. And this is not just about making a decision for Christ. This is about a lifelong allegiance and walking with him. This is the disciple making that Jesus commands here. So Jesus commands baptizing in the Trinitarian name here, applying the sign of the Trinity to believers, bringing the person into the covenant community, showing the world what Christ has done in their lives, seeing people saved. But not making that the be-all, end-all. Only the beginning. Moving on from there to teaching followers to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Declaring the teachings of Jesus. Observing, leading by example. The ESV here uses the word observing, as you can see. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And when I was going over this passage with my kids, uh, I asked them, you know, what did you hear in, in the passage? And one of them said, observe, as in see, right? To see what Jesus had, has done. And I said, no, that's, that, that's a, a fair definition of observe. But here it's more than that. It's not observe as in see. It's observe as in obey, as the NIV translates this. Teaching disciples of Christ to obey all that he has commanded. Everything from Jesus being passed on, everything from Jesus 
and his commandments following, observing by doing. Jesus says in John uh, 14, 15, that we will love him by obeying his commandments. We'll love him by spending our life in service and obedience to our great commissioner. Many, many years ago, maybe decades ago, um, I uh, got the chance to go to a a Billy Graham crusade in uh, Pasadena area at the Rose Bowl. Um, And it, it it was a beautiful, wonderful event. It was grand, as you might know if you've ever been to the Rose Bowl, that is a huge stadium. And they were able to pack out much of the Rose Bowl there. Then a few years ago, I uh, got the chance to go to Charlotte with my wife and we were visiting the Billy Graham Museum there in Charlotte and understood a little bit more about what the Crusades entailed, how Billy Graham organized and structured, or the Billy Graham organization really, structured those. And one thing that became important to Billy Graham early on in his ministry was not just going into an area evangelizing and then leaving and moving on to the next town, but rather Billy Graham saw an importance in partnering with local Bible-believing churches in his area. He wanted to, to make sure that even as he saw maybe conversions in his crusades, even as people were made into disciples of Christ, that they were plugged into a local church where they would grow, where they would walk with Christ and with other believers for the rest of their lives. I think that's a helpful image of what Jesus is commanding here in making disciples. It's not just seeing people converted at a crusade. It's plugging them into a local body of believers so that they can walk with him throughout their lives, so they can be around other disciples and be about the process and the task of disciple-making with their local body of believers. Because this disciple-making that Jesus calls us to, it, it, it doesn't just happen through the verbal witness. It also happens through our actions, through the weekly preaching of the word here, but also the weekly doing of the word. Through walking alongside and with somebody through the pits, through the mountains of life, walking and being a part of this life with other disciples. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 14 helpfully describes this process uh, where it's written, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word by which also and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer it is increased and strengthened. So through the local body of believers, through the sacraments, through prayer, through the ministry of the word, through doing life with other disciples, our faith in Christ is strengthened. We go about this life with other Christ-following disciples. So let us continue to make disciples, to make disciples in the church, to make disciples at home, make disciples at work, on the sports field, on the golf course, to make disciples of all people, both the evangelism 
and the teaching, both the baptizing and the observing and obeying Christ and his commands, sharing the good news of Jesus and walking through this life together, seeing people sanctified and saved or saved and sanctified in the service of our master Jesus. So as we continue to make disciples, as we know our all-powerful risen Lord, Jesus doesn't just leave us with a command. Jesus leaves us with a promise. And this is our last point, Jesus' promise. Look up and know that Jesus is with us from the last part of verse 20. Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus' words, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The gospel ends with a promise, not a command. For you see, the, the gospel of Matthew starts with the Emmanuel, the promise of God with us brought in the Christ child. Jesus also tells us in his ministry that the Holy Spirit is with us or will be with us. And Jesus reminds his disciples that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. The promised Emmanuel, the God with us, promises he will always be with us to the end of this age. Jesus provides the means to carry out his commands with this promise. And this is not a new promise. We see this all throughout Scripture. Whenever God gives commands, whenever God gives big tasks such as evangelizing and making disciples of the world like he does here, God gives a promise. Think about the promises that God gave to Moses and Joshua when he gave them the big task of leading the people of Israel and of conquering the land. God promises to Moses in Exodus 3.12, even as he sends him out to take on the most powerful empire in the world at that time to confront the Pharaoh, God says, I will be with you. Or to Joshua in Joshua 1.5, God says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Jesus promises us that he is always with us to accomplish this task, that he's with us to the end of this age. So as we go out and baptize, evangelize, teach, obey Christ's commands with the hopeful expectation of the Lord's return one day, he's not left us as orphans. We're empowered. We are victorious through Christ who is with us to the end of the age until he returns again in glory to take us home to the place he has prepared for us to see his glory. The all-powerful Christ is with us in all that we do. So as we close out 2023 and head into 2024, Jesus reminds us in this passage that he's the all-powerful Lord who is still with us, who is sending us out into the world to see people saved and sanctified. So how do we approach 2024? In the same way that Christians have for millennia, 
knowing Jesus' credentials from the past, looking forward to what Jesus will do in and through us as we obey his instructions, and looking upward and knowing Jesus' promise that he's with us to the end. We follow the great commission to make disciples because we know our all-powerful, ever-present, great commissioner. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the Gospel of Matthew. We thank you for the words of our great commissioner, Jesus, the all-powerful, risen, glorified one who sends us out to make disciples, who empowers us to make disciples, who promises us that he is with us to the end. Help us to remember this always and to do the work that Christ has set out before us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.